0: part 5 of the Theophiles. I am Ben and I am here in the magical kingdom of Grambulax where the wise king Tiberion the Troll Slayer, having decades earlier defeated the mighty troll lord Gronganon and his army of unstoppable troll warlocks, rules over a peaceful kingdom. But all is not as it seems. Tiberion's brother Jithius the Black, ostensibly his closest advisor, is plotting with the shadowy forces of the Twisted Realms to bring back Gronganon and his army of unstoppable troll warlocks from the dead this time even more unstoppable, due to the unstable but undoubtedly powerful dark force of the Twisted Realms. There is hope, however. Tiberian's son Lodar, though only just of age, is a mighty warrior and an apprentice in the light force of the Holy Realms, having been born under the auspicious sign of the three-headed serpent. Having spied upon Jithius the Black's forbidden dialogues with the Twisted Realms, Lodar is aware of his evil plans and is preparing a resistance having allied both the elves of the winter Glade and the dwarf clans of the deep caves for the first time in Grambulax's year, th- fuck for the first time in <laughs> 150,000 year history, lodar and his 10 armies are ready for the final battle to decide Grambulax's fate. with me is theo, who is a nice man in his 30s. hey. hey. what's going on? how you doing? there's a lot of uh po- have you noticed a fair bit of
1: like political intrigue going on around the place?
0: No, I've mostly just been um Living in serfdom. Yeah. I've been sort of, uh, I wake up very morning, I do a lot
1: of stuff with cabbages and radishes. Yeah, no, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of tending to fields involved in there. They'd really, you'd never stop. No. You, you get to one end of the field and you got to start tilling at the other end. It's and, awful. Like, okay, here's a thought. I don't know who's, to the big guy up there, um, Tiberial Axe or whatever. Yep. Hey, what about what about fucking communing with the forces of light and um, and all that's holy to make maybe like an automated plow or something? Because my dogs are barking. I and was I'm thinking- not just talking about my feet as well. My, <laughs> my dogs are very angry. Uh, they're riled up um, with the kind of constant miasma that's leaking from the uh, Twisted Kingdom. Um, They've sort of gone like the dog from The Thing, which we
0: have here um, the- <laughs> that's- Some parts of other realities leak into this reality And uh, the 1982 film The Thing is one of those things
1: And it's like, hey, can't
0: vote him out No, we don't get the vote No, nobody does <laughs> I was kind of hoping he could maybe commune with the divine forces for something like a eight hour work day and a five day work week. Yeah, because right now I'm on a like a seventy seven seven system. I'm doing eleven hours a day
1: every day of the Okay, week. there it yep. is. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you've got you've got your alchemists. Uh, yeah. You've got your your sorcerers who are ostensibly on the side of good, but are sort of tangling with some dark energies that perhaps they they shouldn't. Uh, I don't got- know if this is if you're allowed to say this
0: anymore. But you ever mm. notice how um sorcerers' faces are always going weird? Yeah, they're always so fucked up. They
1: they're sort yeah. of like
0: and um. I don't want I don't, to attack people for their appearance, but I yeah. mean, if you're commuting with dark forces and your face goes weird, that's kind of on you.
1: And I don't know if that's the in, their intake of, like, heavy metals or just because they're <coughs> consistently lit from below uh, as they're stirring their pot of who knows what. We don't but, know what a lot of chemicals do at this point. Mm, we know a lot of chemicals. That's right. There are certainly lots of them. But none of them seem to make grain that doesn't go fucking moldy <laughs> and get eaten by rats. Uh, so uh, me and my 19 children have to eat dirt this you, and every other winter you know what's fun uh and,
0: and riddle me fucking this all right you can water a plant not enough yeah
1: but you can also water it too much too much that's right and every time it rains uh you know i have to just have to i have to note to my to my wife uh, oh bit of rain yep it's good for the farmers but it might not be unless there's too much rain that's it bad, bad for the for farmers. The farmers.
0: I, that happened with my friends this week. Uh yeah. well, over the last couple of weeks, where they go, This is tremendous. This is the best week we've ever had. And then it rains for three more days, and they go, all of a sudden, half of what we've got is largely unsaleable. And how are they going with miasma? Uh not a lot of miasma related problems okay. in the outer Brisbane suburb of Draper.
1: You heard that it. That I'm aware first, of folks. Draper, mostly miasma free. We have been pushing for a... Land prices are going, this is a pump and dump. Miasma free Morton Bay Council area <laughs> for a long time, and I think we've finally achieved it. You drive into the uh, town shire and there's one of those signs up uh, right at the very entrance of the of the um, local government administrative area. It's just a uh, miasma free, kind of got a... Um, one of those circles with the cross through it over mm, a rat with some stinky line. lines coming up. Yeah, <laughs> there's a
0: rat with like four eyes that's starting mm-hmm. to melt a little bit. Don't Me bring one of those inspection in. inspection stations do apply. You know, how you always see those signs on the border that are like, don't bring bananas in here or
1: whatever. Well, yeah, and your and they never check your you're car. Eating you're eating a banana and you're Better eat this banana quick. The New South Wales Cups
0: are going to pull me over. Uh-huh. I suspect that those signs are mostly for like, um, I guess maybe large deliveries of those things. Less so than you bringing like a single banana that you bought at yeah, the IGA. I don't,
1: I don't know. I mean, I mean, it is to prevent the kind of um, the rot, the fungus that they that they all get because banana every- spiders. Banana spiders because every banana is the same. Every banana tree is the same banana tree. Their souls are intertwined. Their souls are into or oh, there's no they don't have like um, seeds or or, or anything Oh, they're like all clones. That. They're all clones. Like. So uh, they don't have the genetic diversity um, to withstand, uh, you know, attacks of disease like the Dutch.
0: <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, the Dutch have immunity to disease or they are the disease.
1: No, no, they don't have immunity to disease because they're all. Um, like diseases like the Dutch. No, 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 no. They're, the Dutch, they're they're um they're spliced. Up. When you take when you take a uh, a cutting, yes, of an organism and you splice it to another um, grafting, grafting. They're all grafted. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Mm. Vander graft. Uh, and you can sort of assemble a joke yeah. out of that if you like. Hey Ben, put a fork in me because I'm horny to pod. What are we putting about? Ugh. <laughs> 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 Okay, well, um, <laughs> maybe this
0: is your first Theophiles that you've listened to. So, let me explain the concept. Um, mm. We're two friends. We're just piling about. Theo is my friend. And yep. I, I, I believe in a very real way that I am Theo's friend as well. And we like yep. to tell each other little facts. So, what, what we do
1: is we... You're tasty little factoids.
0: We try and delight and surprise each other with mm-hmm. a little story from the annals of history. Uh, the way I do it, from it's the, the anal.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, all right. <laughs> we like to have fun here. All right, we will. We'll all. We'll, we'll, we'll get on this next time. We'll write all our jokes down beforehand, and uh, Ben, you can we'll, have the we'll annals of notes. history. We'll compare notes, and yeah. it'll flow a lot better.
0: I'm going to start us off here. I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back to the year 1959. Mm. The I remember
1: year... it as if it was mm-hmm. 70 years ago.
0: That sounds about right. Uh, wait.
1: 70 years ago. Okay.
0: (laughs) The United States is embarking on an ambitious project. A city underneath the ice. With permission from the Danish government, the US military has begun construction on Camp Century, an experimental subsurface research base in the Arctic. So far, so good. What? What? 6,000 tonnes of building supplies, towed on enormous sleds, travelling at blistering speeds of 3 kilometres an hour. Mm, A hold up to a spot in the northwest of Greenland as army engineers begin tunnelling out the massive trenches in which Camp Century will be built. Location, 800 miles from the North Pole and 150 miles away from what was previously the US Air Force's Thule Air Force Base. Sorry, Thule Air Base, I should say. Uh, was chosen for just how incredibly flat it is, uh, which is necessary for the system of tunnels to work. So I say it was previously uh, the U.S. Air Force's Thule Air Base. Thule Air Base is still there. It is the U.S. Space Force's Thule Air Base now. Because they have a space force now. They have a space force, and it's real. And there are, there are there's a head of it, I presume,
1: and there are service people in it. Guardians, I believe they're called. What the fuck? I know it's um... there's there are too many things going on. Right in this in the 60s there was one. Thing. We were gonna there was one thing. You there got was a start of the year news:
0: the moon landing. Yeah. End of the year news: uh, Woodstock,
1: Kennedy's head exploding. Yeah, popping like a water balloon. Famously, only several things going on in the late 60s. <laughs> <laughs> It was the summer of love, and not much was going on. Not much else.
0: Camp Century consisted of a system of either 21, 23, or 26 trenches, depending on how you count them or who Mm -hmm. you ask. Uh, There was one large main sort of communication trench that ran down the middle, while the rest all housed a set of complete research laboratory and test facilities, modern living quarters, that's how the US Army phrased it, Mm -hmm. uh, and recreation areas, and a complex of support facilities. This communication trench was big enough to drive vehicles in. Uh, You got into the base via a very large ramp to the surface uh, at the end of the communication trench. It looks uh, an awful lot like if you're picturing the Rebel base on Hoth from the Star Wars films, uh, you are not far off. Mm. Uh, Three peter plows. This is a type of specialist snowmilling tractor from Switzerland. Uh, that could carve out something like 1200 yards of snow in a minute or an hour. I should have written that fact down. Uh, but minute, all I know is 1200 is correct.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Cubic yards. 1200 cubic yards in a minute, I think, is actually correct. Okay. No, that still sounds like a lot. Yeah, no, it's anyway. traveling at
1: the speed of sound here. <laughs> totally Using the sonic boom <laughs> in front of it to blast snow into the atmosphere.
0: Uh, please feel free to not write into us if you're checking these numbers. Uh, These three ploughs were used to carve out three kilometres of trapezoidal trenches. So the trenches were wider at the bottom and then sort of tapered in towards the top. Uh, This was because you obviously had to clear out less snow when you really only needed the width to be at the bottom, which is where the stuff was going to be. They came in a few different sizes, the largest of which were 26 feet wide and 26 feet high. They were huge. These massive trenches. You see photos of them, and you think, "My goodness, this is bigger than I was picturing." Uh, these trenches were covered by these curved metal roofs, of essentially corrugated iron, going over the top. That was then layered on top with uh, a meter or so of compacted snow. Inside this base, prefabricated buildings were placed on elevated supports to insulate them from the ice, and also to sort of to keep. Both to keep the cold away from the people inside the buildings and also... No, that's not how energy works, but please ignore that. Uh, to keep the warmth away from... From the snow. From the snow as well, because mm. having that snow melt would be very bad because the whole thing is made out of snow.
1: What, what is the thesis here? Oh, 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 oh. Uh,
0: By the time it was completed, <laughs> the living quarters in Camp Century included, quote, a recreation hall and theatre a library and hobby shops, a dispensary, not for weed, I believe that was just for the regular sort of drugs they gave you in the 50s in the military, you know, LSD, (laughs) meth. Cocaine. Yeah, coke. Laudanum. (laughs) Uh, Lithium, just because you had a tummy upset. Uh, An operating room, a 10-bed infirmary, a laundry facility, a post-exchange, a non-denominational chapel, and a barbershop. At its peak, the base could hold 200 soldiers and scientists. The water for the base was supplied from a reservoir beneath the ice cap, with testing supposedly demonstrating that the water there was more pure than water that had been triple distilled. But
1: with um, Mm -hmm. an unknown organism, (laughs) only seen under the the microscope. It's a
0: very large multicellular organism that Hmm. appeared to evolve very quickly. Very quickly. Novelist Walter Wager, in his book Camp Century City Under the Ice, described the mood in the camp as generally quite good saying that life there was undertaken with, quote, a minimum of fuss and literally no human friction. He continued, uh, there were none of the howling or tragic scenes so favoured by today's earnest method actors. And there was no serious morale problem. As a unit, the men worked together well. As individuals, each man did his job without melodrama. It was a hard job with long hours, but nobody complained. And, and what job is this? So this was... <laughs> as going a- on? This was essentially, uh, I I read a lot about this, right, that it was part of the, trying to sort of capture uh, this idea of, you know, we were getting close to, you know, space race was heating up, you know, Uh, the idea of being able to live in extreme environments, seeing whether we could do that. Uh, Also, the US Army wanted to seem more exciting than the other branches is one reason I've seen, which I quite like. I'll uh, certainly do it. So life there was good, but it wasn't perfect. There were no well, f- they mean they're under the ice for one. <laughs> yeah, it's very cold. <laughs> That's the first bad thing. Uh, there were a few engineering challenges at Camp Sentry that they struggled to overcome. For instance, uh, a design specifications before the camp was built said that the sewage dump, uh, which is Now, this is an amazing feat of engineering. This was a hole that they put turds and piss in. Uh, with the hope that the heat of the turds and the piss would help the turds and the piss burrow their own way down through the ice cap to sink themselves.
1: <laughs> pretty smart, right? Every time you, uh... mm-hmm. it's like that. Um, it's like that old image. I think I'm pretty certain it's a meme. I don't think it's real can't be real, surely, where it's like, oh, I need to dispose of old motor oil. Simply <laughs> yes. dig a hole in your yard, uh, pour the motor oil in and then put a plug of earth on top. And by the time you come back to that hole, uh, the motor oil will have naturally absorbed into the earth. But for piss and shit, yep. burrowing its way to hell.
0: Uh, it's sort of like, I believe I've seen this as a meme, is like um, if you're in the Star Wars universe and you dropped your lightsaber, uh, point down.
1: Mm. it just keeps
0: going. Yeah. Just forget about to It's going yep. <laughs> a, that. a, through to the core of the earth. Uh, So, the the design constraint said they need to be uh, 500 feet away, at least 500 feet away from the nearest occupied building. Uh, Unfortunately, they started to run out of time towards the end, Mm -hmm. so it was placed... Corners cut. Yes, they cut the corners dramatically. They placed it 150 feet away from the living quarters. Uh, Here is a quote from the now declassified October 1965 technical Mm -hmm. report titled Camp Century Evolution of Concept and History of Design, Construction and Performance. The sump was not vented. As a result, the odor of sewage became almost unbearable in the nearest quarters by the following summer. Traces of sewage odor were detectable throughout trenches 18, 19, and 20. Subsequent venting of the sump reduced the odor to a more tolerable level, but did not completely eliminate the condition. Tests conducted after the fact found that over the course of two years, the estimated 12.4 megalitres of discharged liquid sewage (laughs) Had managed to achieve one hundred and seventy feet of lateral penet- penetration into the surrounding snow. Oh, no. Now, I would like you to recall the previous figure that I gave you, which is that the is living 100- quarters were one hundred and fifty feet away.
1: So, through the living quarters, <laughs> yeah, the piss and shit caught up with them, and it caught up with them hard and fast. It sort of sort of made like a um a water table, but like a a piss and shit table. Yes, they've made a piss and shit table. Yeah. Uh,
0: So, in addition to being absolutely heinously gross, this had the added effect of melting the snow that it came into contact with, because, again, it's it's hot piss and shit. Which is the foundation. They've undone themselves with uh, piss and shit. What's that uh, biblical parable? (laughs) Do not build your house upon the snow if you plan to flood it with piss and shit. Uh, So, this... Ended up necessitating the wholesale removal of two buildings permanently uh, from the, the camp because of the, the turds and piss problem they were having. So despite that incredible stink, important scientific research was indeed undertaken at Camp Century. A 1,387-metre ice core drilled at the camp by American glacier scientist Chester Langway, a wonderful 1950s name. Good old Chester. Chester Langway. Imagine saying that with a transatlantic accent. Um, so this ice core provided 100,000 years of annual climate data uh, that is still used to this day.
1: Oh, that's nice. Yeah, love a good um, ice core.
0: In fact, uh, last month there was a, a article published in the journal PNAS, <laughs> Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I think it is, but uh, PNAS is funnier. Uh, so apparently, when they took this massive ice core right they were taking it out in sections and examining it in sections then essentially chucking what they examined into jars when they got down to the bedrock because they drilled all the way through the ice cap which is the first time that this has ever happened that they've ever managed to make it down to bedrock they were like oh yuck it's some dirt and mud and then they <laughs> chucked it in some jars and then they just like chucked it away at a freezer and then a couple of years later uh chester langway found these and sent them to an archive in denmark and then in the last couple of years, someone found them in a freezer in that archive and was like, hey, what's it's with this really dirt? It's really old dirt. Uh, and then they looked at it, and then this gave them, uh, because obviously we are somewhat better at, scientists, at science now than we were in the 50s, uh, we were able to ascertain from what we found there that the Greenland ice cap had been completely thawed probably around 400,000 years ago at that spot. Oh, so the climate's always been changing. So, yeah, so you don't have to worry about, you know, Not climate worry. change or anything like that. But they also found a bunch of 400,000-year-old twigs and leaves down there, which is pretty cool because obviously there was forest growing there at that time. But the the results from that only got published last month. So, people are and still... And Bigfoot's going to want them back.
2: <laughs> he absolutely will.
0: <laughs> uh, it's cool that this is something that he did, you know. Uh, what what do we say 1959 is? 70 years ago? Uh, 70 years ago. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and uh, we're still using it, which is quite nice. nice. Uh, So not only was that historic ice core drilling the most noteworthy scientific achievement of Camp Century, it was also the last. From the charmingly named 2008 paper, The Iceman That Never Came, published in the Journal of Scandinavian History. Oh, I think I might have left something out earlier. Um, Did I mention the nuclear reactor? (laughs) I think I skipped over the nuclear reactor. (gasps) Go on. So, um, they decided that because it took such an incredibly, unbelievably long time to get to Camp Century, it would be impractical to power it
1: on. Uh, yeah, diesel certainly, generators. Certainly, we've never shipped diesel before. It the would technology be... for barrels not yet invented in 1959. <laughs> we don't have it. So we'll have to go with the low tech solution of um, what was what was it again?
0: Uh, that was a portable portable nuclear reactor. Ah, it was okay. the the first of its kind that the army had demonstrated the use of, and this was part of what the base was for: was trying to see whether you could power a remote base from a, a portable nuclear reactor. Um, and we'll get into that. Uh, there's, there's, yeah. The, the, The government of Denmark might not have known that a nuclear reactor was going in there (laughs) at the time that the army put it in. Uh, Sorry, I continue here from uh, The Iceman That Never Came. The reactor was installed in 1960, but was deactivated in 1963 and removed the next year. This was due to an unforeseen problem with the entire camp century concept, namely the fact that ice and snow are viscoelastic materials which slowly deform depending on temperature, density, and time under stress. Despite its seeming firmness and stability, the ice cap is, in fact, in constant slow movement because, uh, sorry, caused by gravity from its centre towards the rims where it eventually hmm. breaks off as icebergs. Same. <laughs> hmm. The constant movement meant tunnels and trenches would narrow as their walls would deform and bulge, and that settling might cause tunnel ceilings to give in. Thus, in the summer of 1962, the ceiling of the reactor room had drooped so low that it had to be lifted five feet to avoid fatal contact with the reactor. Mm
1: hmm. <laughs> Subsequently, oh, what, a, what a great, what a great concept! Ah, oh. uh, we're all just going to go and live in the snow for a bit. By the way, we're also going to be fucking around with nuclear reactors. Uh, all the walls are going to be growing and shrinking <laughs> the entire time. you know that? Um, what could go wrong? Briefly, I believe it was McMurdo uh,
0: Station in the Antarctic was also powered by a small nuclear reactor. <sighs> We've really done our best to make sure it's on every continent. With some radioactive waste everywhere. Uh, subsequently, Camp Century was reduced to a summer-only camp in 1964 and abandoned altogether in 1966. By the time they abandoned it in 1966, shaving more space off the tunnel walls was essentially a full-time job for the entire base. Uh, they were just constantly having to make the walls wider because the walls were constantly shrinking. Uh while abandoning it at this stage was premature, it was only a couple of years shorter than the 10-year lifespan that the army was banking on for the base. So they packed up their shit and left. At least they packed up some of their shit. Some, yeah, as it, as it goes. Mm. This is from the article, The Abandoned Ice Sheet Base at Camp Century Greenland in a Warming Climate, published in 2016 in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. We inventory the nature and quantity of abandoned waste buried at the Camp Century site. Physical waste, such as buildings and railway, is approximately 9,200 tonnes. Chemical waste is an estimated 20,000 litres of diesel fuel and a non-trivial quantity of polychlorinated biphenyls. Biological waste consists of at least 24 megalitres of grey water, including sewage disposed in unlined sumps. Previously Mm -hmm. acknowledged radiological waste, coolant for the portable nuclear generator, had a bulk radioactivity of... 1.2 1.2 giga becquerel at the time of its disposal in an And that's site. probably a, a lot or a little. That's probably a bit. And that's also only the amount that the army has admitted to leaving there, hmm. uh, which is probably, you know, it's probably more than that. So, in other words, they left a ton of contaminants behind under the belief that the snow would just cover it up forever, thus solving the problem once and for all. Once and for all. So that, that for, aforementioned paper uh, argued against that conclusion, suggesting that there was every chance with the climate warming at current rates, those contaminants could well become mobile again in the next
1: 75 years. They were really on a fucking, they were on a roll, weren't they, in the 50s, the American military of just trying to get the nastiest, most horrible chemicals like into everything. Into the most possibly beautiful, could. pristine places in the world. Yeah, yes. you know the, the like the massive um, fuel waste stores in the in the middle of the desert, uh, American uh, East that uh, in in the American West that just rusted away and leaked, you know, gigaliters of shit into the water tables and so on and so forth. And they they really did not give a shit in no. the fifties, and it's cool that we think about that as like the golden time. Oh, yeah, like it's, the it's a time family of pioneering and-, and innovation and moral clarity. And it yeah. said it was just we're destroying the world. I love and- how, how Mad Men basically made it six, seven season run. Um, completely uh, unnecessary in like the second episode where they all go for a picnic. And then at the end, uh, when they're done, they stand up, uh, flick all of the plastic waste off <laughs> of their... Um, off of their picnic <laughs> rug, get in their car and drive away.
0: Yep, that that was the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there is some good news here. Uh, another paper titled "Fern" that's F-I-R-N, uh, which is something to do with snow evolution at Camp Century, Greenland, nineteen sixty-six to twenty-one hundred, published in the journal Frontiers in Earth Science last month says that if IPCC climate modelling bears true up until 2100, the contaminants should actually stay buried. And I quote, As a result of persistent positive mass balance, the debris field is predicted to be below 58 metres of fern and still being further buried at the end of the century in all scenarios. In combination with the absence of meltwater percolation below one metres in all simulations, it is therefore extremely unlikely that meltwater interacts with military waste within this century. So, it actually looked like the army was right, and the meltwater will stay about 57 metres away from the contaminants, leaving it locked in ice. The difference in the studies, according to the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland's Camp Century Climate Monitoring Programme, is that, quote, "...projections have now been adjusted with actual weather measurements from the station at Camp Century, and the measurements show a shorter and colder melting season than that which the earlier calculations were based on."
1: So we're okay. So, we're all right. Basically, 100 years is Once all, and for all. Once and for all. Once and for all. That's all the years. I mean, it's, it's all the years we have. But
0: Now, Camp Century is often sort of, uh, if you see it talked about uh, in you know, YouTube videos and Vice articles or whatever, it's very sensationally described as a, quote, secret base under the ice. Uh, that was not at all the case. It was extremely public knowledge. Uh, the, the book that I mentioned earlier, Camp Century, City Under the Ice, that was published in 1962 while the camp was still active. There is a half-hour-long U.S. Army propaganda video uh, which you can find on YouTube under the title The U.S. Army's Top Secret Arctic City Under the Ice Camp Century Restored Classified Film. Uh, this was not even close to being top secret or classified. That same video was shown on American TV was broadcast nationally. (laughs) Uh, The Boy Scouts of America ran a nationwide competition to select two Boy Scouts to go and visit the camp. Uh, They eventually sent an Eagle Scout from Kansas named Kent Goering and a... (laughs) (laughs) And a Danish Scout named Soren Gregerson uh, to act as junior scientific aides and report back on their experiences. Uh, So, you know, not so much top secret as you could get a copy of the monthly magazine that the boy scouts put out and read all about camp century did they talk about the nuclear reactor in these materials uh yes yes they did what yeah, the fuck? It, in that video they were like and here we see our good boys using the power of the nuclear reactor like it's uh, it's man, all that you should I, definitely watch the video if you can because it is um like it is a laughably naff piece of propaganda like the story, uh, it's just, you've really got to watch it. There's a sort of side story going on throughout it about how the regiment of army men have adopted a Siberian husky as their mascot, even though it's against regulations, in a sort of like, ah, it's the spirit uh, of our
1: boys. Boys will be boys. They cannot stop
0: loving. And like every time they're like, here they are carving up some ice bricks. Uh oh, it looks like Muckluck, the puppy, has gotten in amongst them again. Oh, <laughs> Muckluck. It's. <laughs> His uh,
1: eyes red and glowing. <laughs> he appears to be growing some sort of crab, lips, cra- crab <laughs> limbs crab from his back. Uh, I, I would really love in in one of these episodes to dive into the um the Boy Scout's uh non trivial obsession with like nuclear power. Is that the thing? And the atom. Oh. Well you remember the um the Boy Scout that um put together There's a bunch of different sources. Um, I think the guy, I think the the dollop guys did an episode on the Boy Scout that put together a um, a nuclear reactor in his shed. I listened to that episode. (laughs) It's amazing. It's so good. God bless America.
0: (laughs) What are you doing in there? Oh, nothing. (laughs) Um, So everybody knew about Camp Sensory. But to quote the then chairman of the Danish Atomic Energy Commission, and I love this quote very much. I did not feel convinced that the purpose of this camp was not one which was not fully in the clear.
1: <laughs> so if we take
0: all the knots out of that sentence. We're not not skulking about, wink. <laughs> Let's take the knots out. He's saying, I did feel convinced that the purpose of this camp was one which was not fully in the clear. So that's cancelling out the first double negative to leave us with one negative. He thought some shit was up. Uh... And he was absolutely right. Now, believe it or not, Camp Sentry was not just an altruistic scientific endeavor from the United oh. States military. Camp Sentry itself was a realization of a prototype conducted at an earlier similar camp, much more honestly named Camp Fist Clench. <laughs> Which is sort of a side of things to come. Uh Camp Center itself was a prototype for another project. Mm. And that project was called Project Ice Worm.
1: (laughs) I I thought this was the bad one we just talked about. So Mm. I was looking at the clock. We've got 30 minutes. I've got got two different stories I could dive into here. One's going to be the long one, the short one. Uh, That's a nice little story about a fucking stupid nuclear reactor Mm. dug into the... Iceland, uh, Ice of Greenland, but...
2: Now the project
0: mm-hmm. took its name from the Iceman, a modified version of the Minuteman Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Oh. The idea Good. was that using the snow tunnel technology prototyped at Camp Sentry, Project did Web, not work. Which didn't work. <laughs> Project ISO would see the creation of a network of tunnels covering an initial area of roughly 134,000 kilometres. Uh, for scale, this is roughly the size of two Tasmanias. It's a double that, Tasmania situation.
1: Okay. That's uh, more from, Tasmanias than we currently have.
0: For America, I think this is the area of North Carolina. Uh, for the UK... You can't conceive of anything that big. No. You wouldn't know about it. Uh, These tunnels would play host to 600 medium range ballistic nuclear missiles, all of which would be permanently trained on strategic targets in the Soviet Union while being periodically moved around to make it impossible for the Soviets to take out their launching capability in a single strike comprising of some 4,000 kilometers of tunnels manned by 11,000 military personnel featuring 60 separate launch control centers and expanded upon every year with additional launch sites to make it even harder for the Reds to accurately attack the base. It was going to be an enormous undertaking. And it was one that the Danish government
1: supposedly had no idea about. Oh, good. It, it. It's so it rules. It rules so much how fucking how indoctrinated we are about what happened in the Cold War uh, and how America was so aggressive mm. mm-hmm. in everything that they did. I remember, you know, talking about um you know the the incident where um in the Soviet Union where um the radars showed um there was a nuclear launch coming at them and there was the the um ...the controller who was to hit the button to uh, launch in retaliation... ...but he didn't do it. Yeah. Um, and talking to him and him saying, like... ...we couldn't understand why the Americans thought that we would nuke them. <laughs> right? Like, we don't have any reason to... Um, ...like, that we would just be these barbarians... ...that would just, like, launch nukes at any time... Uh, to completely, you know, destroy them and the world, uh, and just do not get it. And here, the Americans are digging six hundred yes. ICBM launch sites. Uh, M- MRBMs, but yes, yeah, six hundred of them. Yeah, the idea Same is that continent. Greenland is closer. So okay, yeah, medium range, right?
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you understand that the, of course, the easiest way to have. Uh, international global communism is not to convert
1: the capitalist countries to communism, but to simply wipe them out. No, that's right. And the the communist is enhanced by nuclear waste.
0: (laughs) It makes them stronger, taller, greener, and able to carry heavy weapons easily. Um, So this wasn't really
1: known until the mid-90s. And it Uh, seems like something that would be quite easy to go under the radar as far as the amount of people working on it, the amount of effort involved. Although you say that, I was reading this, like, uh,
0: it's like a military history blog um, where they were sharing a bunch of videos and sharing some archival photos and going through reports. There were like five people in the comments being like, uh, there was someone who was like, I was stationed at that base. And other people (laughs) being like, my grandpa was stationed there. I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, It was just. It's pretty wild. But of course, those people didn't know that it was a test for Project Iceworm either. Uh, no, so- they, they
1: thought they were under the under the snow in a foreign nation uh, for completely altruistic reasons.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, they generally the, thought The Danish was-
1: boys have, told, have asked us to look after this snow and look after it, we will.
0: <laughs> they love their snow, the Danes. <laughs> So yeah, they all thought they were just you know this was the the spirit of exploration, the the, the spirit of the human spirit to triumph over any environment, you know. Uh, but that's that's not what they were there. So this got made public thanks to uh, a an inquiry in the mid '90s undertaken by the Danish Foreign Policy Institute, uh, because. So I think in it was in 1957, um, Denmark. Uh, declared that they were never going to have nuclear weapons on their soil. Right. Uh, And as part of the agreement that let the US build military bases in Greenland, they were like, no nukes.
1: Or at least if you have nukes, don't tell us about it. Mm -hmm. You Uh, may sleep in this- You may sleep in my barn, as long as you do not- uh, make any of my any of my daughters nuclear, as so long as you don't have sex with any of my fissile material. <laughs>
0: um, so, in the nineties, uh, what sparked this inquiry was documents getting declassified about an American B fifty two that crashed in Greenland in nineteen sixty eight, which was carrying nuclear warheads. Uh, So that revealed that the US had been storing nukes in Greenland the entire time. I
1: mean, they could have just been passing through on their way to northern uh, Sweden. That is actually exactly the argument that the Danish
0: government (laughs) made, which was, whoa, 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 no, no, we said we won't store (laughs) nuclear weapons here, but if you're taking nuclear weapons through, that is fine. So... (laughs) Uh, despite the Danish government having said that there were never going to be nukes there, uh, obviously, the Americans had a ton of them at Thule Air Base. Uh, and there are lots of suggestions that the US government tried to tell the Danish government, and their official response was, oh, don't don't worry about it. Don't tell us. We're we breaking up. We're
1: going through an ice tunnel.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, And so as a result of this inquiry into the B-52 crash, they found a bunch of stuff about Project Iceworm. Uh, uh, They did like a big study of some declassified material like, hey, wait a second, you tried to build an enormous network of nuclear launch sites in Greenland and you weren't going to tell us about it. No, no we didn't. Uh, Which is just amazing. So yeah, luckily uh, the US Army was just wrong about how ice caps worked and so they couldn't do it. And that's it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) God damn, we are so fucked.
0: I know. Every time I read more about this, I was just like, oh, here's another incredibly fucked up thing about it. Tremendous. Ugh. Apparently, uh, a lot of the soldiers stationed on the base were absolutely terrified of the nuclear reactor and complained about it constantly, just being like, hey, we're not really comfortable with this. And the I'm army not was just like, the, uh, the whole nuclear reactor thing. Yeah. army just told them to suck it up, basically. Very cool, Ben. Thank you. Hey, i uh, happy to share with you. Uh-huh. Thank you for being shared too.
1: It was my. Uh, yep. Yeah. Not quite. What's not quite pleasure? Your life.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, got me. I'm sorry about your anxiety and depression. <laughs> uh, not as sorry
1: as I am.
2: Are you tired of paying nothing for the same old superior quality free episodes of the Bunte Vista podcast? Do you want less politics and more content about diarrhea or animals gone wild? Are you tired of skipping through those hours upon hours of paid product placement for Mark Wahlberg film Shooter? Boy, do I have the offer of a lifetime for you! That's right. For just five U.S. dollars a month, you too can be a premium VIP member of the Buntavista Vista Patreon. That's right, just five U.S. dollars for all of our bonus episodes. That's over 300 hours of content from the hosts you know and definitely tolerate. I'll even throw in access to our glamorous and exclusive Discord server, where bizarre arguments only happen once or twice a week at most. Head to Patreon.com/BunterVista. Sign up in the next five minutes and I won't know because that's not my job, but you'll be enjoying the sweet satisfaction of supporting us, and we will love you romantically for it. That's my promise to you.
1: Ben. Yes. Hi, Theo. As my, uh, as my late grandfather used to say, you've got two legs that go all the way up to your bum. That's certainly true. Mm. Let's talk about inventors that were killed by their own inventions. <laughs> I would absolutely love to. Uh, Kick off with uh, Tommy M. Uh, Thomas Midgley Jr. uh, was born in Beaver Falls. (laughs) They sure do. (laughs)
2: Uh, Not the way I do it.
1: Um, To a family with a history of invention, Uh, Thomas Midgley Sr. was an inventor, notably in the field of automobile uh, tyres. Square. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Pentagonal, <laughs> uh, hexagonal, <laughs> spheroid. are closer all the time. Uh, and Hattie Midgley, um, Great his maternal—no, uh, no inventions. No. Oh. Sad. His maternal grandfather was James Emerson, who invented the inserted tooth saw. I don't know what that is. I don't
0: know what that is either. Is that like what the I saw insert- where the teeth of it are replaceable? You could pull out Ooh. each individual tooth. So instead of sharpening your saw, you just buy a whole new set of
1: teeth. whole new set of teeth. Could be. Could be. We'll never know. Nope. Uh, he grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and graduated from Cornell University in 1911 with a degree in mechanical engineering. Um, so there's a lot of lead up to the way that uh, this man kills himself with his own invention, and you'll see why momentarily. Mm hmm. Uh, Midgley began working at General Motors in 1916. In December 1921, while working under the direction of Charles Kettering at Dayton Research Laboratories, a subsidiary of General Motors, Midgley discovered that the addition of tetraethyl lead to gasoline prevented prevented knocking in internal combustion engines. Mm. Uh, The company named the substance Ethyl, uh, avoiding all mention of lead in reports (coughs) and advertising. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, oil companies and automobile manufacturers, especially GM, which owned the paint jointly filed by Kettering and Midgley, promoted the TEL additive as an inexpensive alternative superior to ethanol or ethanol blended fuels on which they could make very little profit. Um, on In December 1922, uh, the American Chemical Society awarded Midgley the 1923 Nichols Medal for the use of anti-knock compounds in motor fuels. Uh, this was the first of several major awards he earned during his career. So that's mm. leaded petrol.
0: Yes, he invented that thing that we very much had to stop using.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, but but not not soon enough. No, oh no. Mm. So, uh, in 1923, Midgley took a long vacation in Miami, Florida to cure himself of lead poisoning. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sea air <laughs> Work That's wonders sea- on your lead poisoning On my lead, yeah <laughs> He found... Quote, that my lungs have been affected and that it is necessary to drop all work and get a large supply of fresh air. God damn, that was a better time. I mean, it wasn't.
0: It absolutely wasn't because it didn't it cure not. you. But also just being like, you know what? I have a touch of the damps, And the mm-hmm. doctor's like, I prescribe you a month at the
1: shore. A month's bed rest. Uh, <laughs> on a banana lounge. <laughs> sweat, out the, sweat out those heavy metals. Um... So, not, not yet dead by his own invention, by the way. Uh, in April 1923, uh, GM created the General Motors Chemical Company to supervise the production of TEL by the DuPont Company. Kettering was elected as president, Midgley as vice president. However, after two deaths and several cases of lead poisoning at the TEL prototype plant in Dayton, Ohio, staff at Dayton was said in 1924 to be, quote, depressed to the point of considering giving up the whole tetraethyl lead program. This close, you could have just dropped it. You could have had
0: an inch more depression and you would have saved a lot of lives. A
1: lot of lives. Oh, well, Uh, over the course of the next year, eight more people died at DuPont's plant in Deepwater, New Jersey. Um, the In 1924, I satisfied with the speed of DuPont's TEL production using the bromide process. GM and the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey, companies love to be called the Standard Oil Company.
0: Uh, in my mind, they're, they're sort of every company in a certain period of America is called the Standard
1: Oil Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, now known as ExxonMobil, so they let someone else have the name after that. <laughs> 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 ...created the Ethyl Gasoline Corporation to produce and market T.E.L. Oh. Ethyl Co- Corporation built a new chemical plant uh, using a high temperature ethyl chloride process at Bayway Refinery in New Jersey. However, within the two months of its operation, the new plant was plagued by more cases of lead poisoning, hallucinations, insanity and five deaths. You'd just be like, hey, I think something a- is up. Something... We've got the data and uh, it's all going up at the end where there's, on the x-axis is uh, not having t- uh, TEL and then towards the other end, it's having TEL and deaths and insanities, they just kind of keep going up. Anecdotally, we're all Anecdotally. fucking dying. Yeah, uh, the ones that, who aren't dying, uh, they're not having a good time either.
0: I just I know this isn't a, a rigorous statistical analysis of what's happening here. Uh, but everyone has either turned into the Jack Nicholson Joker uh, or died.
1: <laughs> so we should maybe look into this. We don't know if it's a genetic thing that determines whether they become the Jack Nicholson Joker <laughs> or die.
0: Some people have the uh, the Jack Nicholson Joker gene mm-hmm. and some people don't. Some it's people that don't. simple. And that's what's so beautiful about humanity. It
1: takes all sorts.
0: <laughs> those like DNA testing websites that you, you set up to determine where you come from will tell you whether or not <laughs> well, you have Jack so Nicholson's Nicholson Joker, Nicholson. Joker. So uh. don't fall into a vat of acid before having done one of those things, because you don't want to just
1: die instead of you know. Okay, we are we are we are getting closer to this man being killed by his own invention, mm. um, as you'll see in this next paragraph. On October <laughs> thirtieth, nineteen twenty-four. Midgley participated in a press conference to demonstrate the apparent safety of TEL, in which he poured Mm. TEL over his hands, placed a bottle of the chemical under his nose, and inhaled its vapour for 60 seconds, declaring that he could do this every day without succumbing to any problems. Mm -hmm. However, the state of New Jersey ordered the Bayway plant to be closed a few days later, and Jersey Standard was forbidden to manufacture TEL again without state permission. Uh, Midgley... Midgley would later have to take a leave of absence from work after being diagnosed with lead poisoning. (laughs) He's already had lead poisoning! I just, you know,
0: like... Most of these evils come from the corporations, not from individual actors, right? But when you're there just being like... Bed.
1: Mm -hmm. Strap yourself in. Okay. He was relieved of his position of vice president of GMCC in April 1925, reportedly due to his inexperience in organisational matters, but he remained an employee of GM. Mm-hmm. So he turned his mind then, his sharp mind, his beautiful mind <clears throat> ticking like a incredibly well-greased uh, set of cogs. The grease seeping into uh, the, the land caused centuries of pollution. Um in the light, late 1920s, air conditioning and refrigeration systems employed compounds such as ammonia, chloromethane, uh, propane and sulfur dioxide as refrigerants. Though effective, these were toxic, flammable or explosive. Uh, <laughs> or a combination of all three. All com- three. If only it wasn't, if only it was just one of these three things, Ben. Oh, I feel very uh, sick and I've just exploded. What mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <One> of these problems What way to deal with. Uh, The Frigidaire division of GM, at that time a leading manufacturer of such systems, sought a non-toxic, non-flammable alternative to these refrigerants. Uh, Kettering, the vice-president of General Motors Research Corporation at that time, assembled a team that included Midgley and Albert Leon Henne to develop such a compound. The team soon narrowed their focus to acyl halides, the combination of carbon chains and halogens, which are known to be highly volatile, which is a requirement for a refrigerant, and also chemically inert. Uh, they eventually settled on the concept of incorporating fluorine into a hydrocarbon. Uh, they rejected the assumption that such compounds would be toxic, believing that the stability of the carb- carbon fluorine bond would be sufficient to prevent the release of hydrogen fluoride or other potential breakdown products. The team eventually synthesized dichlorodifluoromethane, the first chlorofluorocarbon, mm. or CFC, which they named Freon. hmm Yep. Uh, this compound is, compound is more commonly referred to today as Freon-12 or R-12. Freon and other CFCs soon largely replaced other refrigerants and later appeared in other applications, such as propellants in aerosol spray cans (laughs) and asthma inhalers. Uh, The Society of Chemical (laughs) Industry awarded Midgley the Perkin Medal in 1937. (laughs) 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 There's a
0: fucking, there's a joke in a Future Armor episode, and I know I do this a lot on the podcast, where uh, at the end of the episode... uh, Professor Farsworth is awarded the polluting medal of pollution for having polluted so much that it saved the planet for some reason. Uh, uh-huh. That's essentially what they have been
1: doing constantly. i just just like,
0: oh, you put lead into petrol? Here's a metal.
1: Here's oh, a metal. You put a hole in the ozone layer? Here's a metal. Well, not just one medal, Ben. In 1941, the Chemical oh. Chemical uh, the the American Chemical Society gave Midgley its highest award, <laughs> the Priestley Medal. This was followed by the Willard Gibbs Award in 1942. <laughs> he also held two honorary degrees and was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. In 1944, he was elected president and chairman of the American Chemical Society. Oh. Um, Still alive. Midgley's legacy has been scarred by the negative environmental impact of leaded gasoline and freon. No. Environmental historian J.R. McNeil opined that Midgley, quote, had more impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. And Bill Bryson remarked that Midgley possessed, quote, an instinct for the regrettable that was almost uncanny. <laughs> Use of leaded gasoline, which he invented, (laughs) released large quantities of lead into the atmosphere all over the world. High atmospheric lead levels have been linked with serious long-term health problems from childhood, including neurological impairment, with increased levels of violence and criminality in cities. Time magazine included both leaded gasoline and CFCs on the list of, quote, the 50 worst inventions. In 1940, at the age of 51, Meechley c- contracted poliomyelitis, which left him severely disabled. He devised an elaborate system of ropes and pulleys to lift himself out of bed. In 1944, he became entangled in the device and died of strangulation. <laughs> oh, shit.
0: God damn it. <laughs> oh my god.
1: Now, the most the most futurama wait.
0: I had a sneaking suspicion that this story was maybe going to end him with him being crushed by a fridge or hit by a car. <laughs> <laughs> that is just amazing. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, you,
1: I, I, <laughs> history is so beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Alright, let's uh let's um turn our keen eye towards France for a little bit. I would love um, to. Let's talk about Franz Reichelt, also known as Franz Reichelt or Francois (laughs) Reichelt, uh, was an Austrian-born French tailor inventor and parachuting pioneer, now sometimes Mm. referred to as the flying tailor, um, ironically, (laughs) I think. Um, So from 1910, Reichelt began to develop a parachute suit, a suit that was not... Uh, Much more bulky than one normally worn by an aviator, but with the addition of a few rods, a silk canopy, and a small amount of rubber that allowed it to fold out to become what Reichelt hoped to be a practical and efficient parachute. Mm. Um, Reichelt seems to have become interested in parachute design after hearing some of the stories of fatal accidents. Among the early aeronauts and aviators His early tests were successful Dummies equipped with foldable silk wings Touched down lightly when dropped from the 5th floor But converting the prototypes into a wearing a wearable suit Proved difficult His original design used 6 square metres of material And weighed around 70 kilograms He presented his design to the leading aeronautical organisation La, La Ligue Aérienne At the and We have no way of what that means in. Hoping that they would test it, but they rejected his designs on the grounds that the construction of the canopy was too weak. And they attempted to dissuade him from spending further time on development. That seems like that was a good call on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, he p- persevered and conducted <sighs> experimental drops with dummies from the courtyard at his building at Rue Gallion. None of his tests proved successful. Uh-huh. In 1911, a colonel Lalance uh, wrote to the Aero Club de France, offering a prize of 10,000 francs for a safety parachute for aviators, double the prize he had offered the year before competition was open for three years and stipulated that the parachute must weigh no more than 25 kilograms. Reichelt refined his design, reducing the weight while increasing the surface area of the material till it reached 12 square meters. But his tests were still unsuccessful, and the dummies invariably fell heavily to earth. Uh, le Quest Eclair, uh, the quest for the Best to clear, I think, uh, reported (laughs) that in 1911, (laughs) he had personally jumped from a a height of 8 to 10 metres at Joinville. The attempt failed, but a pile of straw helped him escape injury. La Matine. Is that open?
0: Yep. No, this this sounded good so far. So
1: so far, so good. And my belief Um, is that the average uh, plane
0: travels at an altitude of about 8 to 10 metres. I'm I'm not Lucy, certainly.
1: And I think just like the previous story, I, I may be kind of... Veering with danger only to pull away at the last moment. Mm -hmm. But let's see. Um, Le Matin reported an attempt at Nurgent from a height of eight meters that resulted in a broken leg. Le petit journal. Hey, small journal, much? (laughs) Uh, Good journal. It is uh, very petite. (laughs) Very small.
0: That was one of the meanest things you can say to someone in that era. Uh,
1: Nice journal. Does it come in a bigger size? (laughs) Uh, they suggested that he also made at least two apparently inconclusive tests with dummies from the first deck of the Eiffel Tower during 1911. They loved to do things at the Eiffel Tower, which I understand to be just a normal place to do things.
0: Yeah, he's just like, everyone else is there sort of, you know,
1: smoking cigarettes, smoking cigarettes,
0: uh, making out with just far too much time. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's just carrying a bunch of dummies up in wingsuits, being like, it is a beautiful day. Time you know, to break my 1,000 streak of
1: failures. <laughs> but an interview with one of Reichelt's friends in La Presse uh, made it clear <clears throat> that he had been oh, su- uh, unsuccessfully applying for permission to conduct a test from the Eiffel Tower for over a year before he finally received the authorization for the final jump. Sometimes the final jump. Oh, no. Okay. Yep. Surely this will be the end of him. Um, oh. <laughs> there have been other tests from the tower during 1910 and 1911, though. Gaston Herveux, who employed dummy aircraft and mannequins in his experiments. What's wrong with a little chipmunk with a aviator's scarf on? Hmm. Yep. What's wrong with that? This is where the French tried to get too clever with things. Uh, Was attempting to perfect a parachute design to ensure the safe landing of a pilot with all or part of a damaged aircraft Reichelt attributed the failures of his design at least in part to the short drop distances over which he had conducted his tests Oh, of course So so he was keen to receive permission to experiment from the Eiffel Tower Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm Raquel announced to the press in early February 1912 that he had finally received permission and would shortly conduct an experiment from the Eiffel Tower to prove the value of his invention. Uh, On Sunday, 4th of February at 7am, he arrived at the Tower by car with two friends. Um, He was already wearing his parachute suit. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The news footage of his jump shows him modelling his invention in its folded form, which La Goula... um, Described as, quote, only a little more voluminous than ordinary clothing. Uh, the suit did not restrict the wearer's movements when the parachute was packed. And le, le petite parisien, hey, <laughs> small Paris much. <laughs> they love calling things le petite something, don't they? They sure do. Um, described the method of deploying the parachute as being as simple as extending the arms out to form a cross with the body. Sort of like... Yeah, sort of like... Uh-huh. Our saviour. Yeah. Savior. yeah. Uh, Who did uh, die. Yeah, for us. But but afterwards he rose, so... Mm. That's pretty cool. You're doing some foreshadowing here. Um, once <laughs> once extended, the outfit resembled, uh, quote, a sort of cloak fitted with a vast hood of silk, uh, according to Le Temp. <laughs> L'action française. Uh, reported that um uh, stated the surface area of the funnel design designed to be 30 square metres with a canopy height of 5 metres, while Le Figaro judged the surface area might have reached 32 square metres. So they've all got their own little measurement system going on mm. here, which is fun. Lacroix um, claimed that the suit may have weighed as little as 9 kilograms. The weather was cold with temperatures below zero, and there was a stiff breeze blowing across the Champ de mars there were some police officers present uh, present to maintain order, as the Parisian Prefecture of Police had given Reichelt permission to proceed. Um, after Reichelt's death, we're going to just skip over that bit, uh, Louis Lepin, who as the Prefect of Police was ultimately responsible for the permission being granted, issued a statement making it clear that while the police routinely gave permission for experiments performed at the Eiffel Tower, it was understood in this case that dummies would be used. They'd they'd given permission in Reichelt's case only that the basis, on the basis that he would be conducting dummy drops and under no circumstances would they have allowed him to proceed if they'd known that he was making the jump himself.
0: Maybe um, they got
1: confused.
0: Yeah. Because this man is a dummy.
1: Am I right? <laughs> he was a dummy. Yeah. He dies very shortly. Um, the...
0: <laughs> this is really like a uh, there's a monster at the end of this book or John dies at the end That's type right. situation. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, I don't want to spoil things in this <laughs> inventors killed by their own inventions. Yeah. <laughs> He's not segment. still alive to this day. No, he did not live. Possibly due to old age. Uh possibly that, his right. body just did that. He
0: might have invented whatever weird thing it is uh-huh. that causes us to die. I'm not really a that. He
1: might have just done uh the thing that the dude from um mm-hmm. Midsummer did.
0: Oh, his he body might have done, might have it, just done that. He
1: might he might have ate a himself. He reached the ripe ripe old age of, what's that, 32, 40, 44. And I got well, I have enough. I've given enough to society. Time to. I must stup Le petit stup. Le petit We call this le petit mort. <laughs> You'll be coming so hard when you <laughs> Um, uh, uh. From his arrival at the tower, however, Reichelt made it clear that he intended to jump himself According to a later interview with one of the friends who accompanied up the tower This was a surprise to everybody As Reichelt had concealed his intention until the last moment His (laughs) friends tried to persuade him to use dummies in the experiment Assuring him that he would have other opportunities to make the jump himself Hey, you don't have to get pancaked today (laughs) You could get pancaked Tomorrow, so next th-
0: week, next, next year, week. 20 years. The the Eiffel Tower, the ground underneath it. The Eiffel Tower will sure be there for at least another 10 years. Mm-hmm. Made
1: as it is of um, cheese. <laughs> uh, sort of hard <laughs> S- bread. Yeah. Yeah. Stinky wax, mm. etc. Um, uh, when this failed to make an impression on him. <laughs> what, what would take to argue this guy around. Uh, They pointed to the strength of the wind and said he should call off the test on safety grounds or at least delay until the wind dropped. They were unable to shake his resolve. Seemingly undeterred by the failure of his previous tests, he told journalists from Le Petit Journal uh, Mm -hmm. that he was totally convinced that his apparatus would work and work well, but this went unread because the print was too tiny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When questioned as to... (laughs) Whether he planned to take any additional precautions, such as using a safety rope, he replied that he would not, since he intended to trust his life entirely to his parachute. Mm-hmm. I want to try experiment myself, and without trickery, as I intend to prove the worth of my invention. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. You just feel like maybe there's a step between never having had it worked with dummies, yep. to doing it untethered as a man.
1: Once or twice, you want to have you want to have a couple of wins, like put a
0: trampoline beneath a you. Yeah, you know, but beneath the dummy at least until you get that to work. Something.
1: Uh, Hervo, who was present to witness the demonstration, also attempted to dissuade him from making the jump. He was concerned that the parachute needed longer to fully open than the few seconds the drop from the first platform would allow. And he, why go from the first platform? I've been to the Eiffel Tower; it goes up higher. It does. I've, I've seen a photo of the Eiffel Tower. Um, yeah, it goes way up. Never been there in
0: person. Mm. Wouldn't, wouldn't go to France, I don't think. I wouldn't go to Europe. It yeah. like, seems like a whole lot of foo A
1: whole lot of, uh, yeah. A lot of nonsense going on over there.
0: That's right. Um, like this. Nonsense like this. I assume there's a daily occurrence. An insane <laughs> Frenchman wearing a wingsuit being like, It will be the most great invention of this century. <laughs>
1: While everyone's like, Well, you are about to die. Can yep. I please have your watch? <laughs> um, so Hervo also presented other technical objections to which Reichelt could not provide a satisfactory response Listen, I'll get to your answers soon, nerd, but first check this out <laughs> Quote <laughs> You're going to see how my 72 kilos and my parachute will give your arguments the most decisive of denials
0: Hmm Something Uh,
1: very decisive is about to happen, isn't it? Yeah. Ropes had been suspended between the legs of the tower by the police at Reichelt's request to prevent the crowds from spilling onto the landing zone. Or more of a crash zone. Mm. Don't want to foreshadow too much here. Don't want There is still a lot of uh, surprise yet to occur. You know Um, that uh, when
0: there's like parts at uh, those water theme parks where they say it's the splash zone where you know you're going to get wet? mm. That's what the other side of the rope is. Yeah, you're going to get wet. Yeah. You're going to get dredged.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like sitting in the first two rows at a Gallagher gig. Not familiar. Okay. Okay. Oh, um, sorry, Gallagher. Gallagher. I,
0: I was thinking of Gallagher, the arcade
1: machine. <laughs> You're thinking of Gallagher's brother, Gallagher. <laughs> 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 I was thinking of Gallagher. According to Le, P- Le Petit Parisien, uh, Reichelt's initial attempt to ascend to the first stage of the tower was blocked by a guard named Galson. <laughs> Who, who had witnessed previous unsuccessful dummy drops, feared that Reichelt's attempt would end in disaster, though Le Figaro uh, reported that he had merely not received a copy of the order and had to wait for telephone confirmation from his superiors. Ah, okay, yep, so the guy... Okay, the guy's yep, about to kill himself. Do you want to, me to... Good to... Yes, or... I don't know, just let him... All so right. This mm, was either
0: like an incredible act of sort of moral fortitude and benevolence on this person's part, or it was just slow bureaucracy. Yeah,
1: bureaucracy. Slow bureaucracy. That's yeah. right. Um, despite the guard's resistance, by eight AM the matter had re- been resolved. Mm. Reichelt, who was visibly shaken by his argument with the guard, um, <laughs> was allowed to mount the. tower. Ta- <laughs> just really doesn't like conflict. It really harsh you know? my vibe, bro. <laughs> really harsh my vibe. I um, <laughs> was allowed to mount the tower with his two friends and a cinematographer. Uh, Another was stationed near the foot of the tower to record the jump from below. And you can look these up, by the way. I didn't. I might not. Mm.
0: Depending on how the next couple Depending on how the next...
1: next, uh, There's only about half a paragraph left to go. Um, As he climbed (laughs) the stairs, he paused, turning back to the crowd, raised his hand and wished them a cheery abientot. His friends continued to try to talk him out of the jump, but Reichelt was quite determined. Uh, at 8.22am, observed by a crowd of about 30 journalists and curious onlookers, he readied himself, facing towards the Seine on a stool and placed on a restaurant table near, near next to the interior guardrail of the tower's first deck, a little more than 57 metres above the ground. After adjusting his apparatus with the assistance of his friends and checking the wind direction by throwing a piece of paper taken from a small book, placed one foot on the guardrail, hesitated for about 40 seconds, and then <laughs> leapt outwards. Uh, Mm -hmm. According to Le Figaro, he was calm and smiling just before he jumped. His parachute, uh, which had seemed to only be half-opened, folded around him almost immediately (laughs) and he fell for a few seconds before striking the frozen soil at the foot of the tower. Yep. Hmm. Let's talk about the demon core. I would love to. Okay. Sorry, there wasn't any twist there. It's a little trick. Yeah, yeah the the twist that there was no twist. <laughs> the twist was that um the twist was him the twist of his
0: getting parachute. twisted up in his own parachute and then dying while a bunch yeah. of people who just spent 3 hours telling him,
1: "Hey man, hey, you're about to you're about to die doing this." Well, thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. The Demon Core was a spherical, six point two kilogram subcritical mass of plutonium, <laughs> uh, eighty millimeters, eighty nine millimeters in diameter, manufactured during the World War II by the United States nuclear weapon development program, the Manhattan Project, as a fissile core for an early atomic bomb. Now, this wasn't initially called the Demon Core, Ben. I'm just going to put that out there. When,
0: when the top. Scientists were putting pen to paper. No one was like, hey,
1: I'm inventing the hey, demon the core. The demon core. Yeah. <laughs> hey, how's, how's work on the demon core going yet? Oh, not quite ready for uh, the demon core to go into production. So far, demon core still in its early stages. Still in its early stages. Um, the core assembled was designed to be at negative five cents. So they talk about in cents and dollars of um, of whether or not a reaction is, is critical. There's a whole bunch of factors that kind of get added up or multiplied out. Um, like K factors, you know, so how, how dense the material is, how much of it there is, you know, how, much, uh, how many slow neutrons, fast neutrons, et cetera. And, and if it's over one, um, you're fucked. Okay. But that's where you want it to be. Um, you know, you want it to be over one for a nuclear bomb, right? You want it to be able to compress slightly at the time that it needs to and then explode. Uh so they've they've set this at at uh imagine you imagine the hands on the doomsday clock and you're kind of winding that bad boy uh, all the way fifty five minutes, five minutes to the hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the demon core is, is sort of set by design. Mm-hmm. In this state, there is only a small safety margin against extraneous factors which might increase reactivity, causing the core to become supercritical, and then prompt critical, a brief state of rapid energy increase. These factors are not common within the environment, they are circumstances like the compression of the solar metallic core, which would eventually be used as a method to explode the bomb, the addition of more nuclear material, or provision of an external reflector which would reflect outbound neutrons back into the core, into the core. Uh, on August 21st, 1945, Harry Daglian was performing neutron reflector experiments on the core. He was mm-hmm. working alone. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I don't know if you uh, recall back, back <laughs> one sentence. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm just... I I don't
0: want to point out how, how mm-hmm. much of a clever dick I am, but I recall a detail from <laughs> earlier
1: 30 seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> one of the several things... Uh. He was working alone. A security guard, Private Robert J. Hemley, was oh, seated at a it's desk... it's a good sign if mm-hmm. the security guard is mentioned by name. Yeah, and they're, and they're also measuring out the distances with a piece of uh, string yeah. uh, from here to there. In this case, it was 10 to 12 metres away. Sorry, 10 to 12 feet away, 3 to 4 metres away. The core was placed within a stack of neutron reflective tungsten carbide bricks, and the addition of each brick moved the assembly closer to criticality. Uh, one more, and just a little sip of my coffee uh, over there, uh, while attempting to stack another brick around the assembly, <laughs> Daglian accidentally dropped it onto the core. Ah, oh, fuck! Ah, oh, butterfingers. So I am re- uh, recalling another thing. Um, it, from it doesn't earlier. like being being. It wants it's a little bit of personal space. The yeah. demon core. It's uh-huh. a little touchy. Doesn't like to be squished. Doesn't. It doesn't enjoy being glomped. Mm-hmm. Um, but Daglian glomped uh, his little radioactive bishy uh causing it to go into supercriticality and that's uh, good that's no sorry that's that's bad oh oh shit it's, it hasn't he's gone he's gone sort of um doomsday clock 5 minutes past the hour if you will
0: right so crisis averted <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: it's all behind us well, it yeah, is it's behind, in it's in behind us yeah yeah uh, he quickly moved the brick off the assembly. Whew, That'll fix it. Um, yep, <laughs> but received a fatal <laughs> dose of radiation. He oh. Died 25 days later from Jesus. acute radiation poisoning. The security guard passed away in 1978, 33 years after the accident of acute my 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 uh, bad leukemia at the age of 62. Oof. On May 21st, 1946. Physicist Louis Slotin and seven seven other Los Alamos personnel were in a Los Alamos laboratory, oh, one of the classic places to do nuclear science.
0: You just know that. Say you're watching a film and it's mm. like Los Alamos, yeah, 1950, whatever. You're yeah. like, ah, you've fuck. got a you've someone's got a big about old to be crystal. turned into like, say, a big blue guy or. That's- uh, it's the birth of evil into the world or something along
1: those lines. We've got a big lump of glowing material. We're in Black Mesa. The only thing to do is to push the glo- the glowing material into the void. No other choice. No other choice. So anyway, Slotin, who is leaving Los Alamos. So you know how you get to the end of a job and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, it's not my problem anymore. L- being alive, not not my problem anymore. Yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were conducting an, another experiment to verify the closeness of the core to criticality. Uh-huh. Uh, and what method do you think that they were using? Did they use the classic drop a brick on it method? No. Uh, yes, but not intentionally. Uh, they used the positioning of neutron reflectors.
0: Yeah. Okay, fantastic.
1: Yeah. Okay, so Slotin was showing the technique to Alvin C. Graves. Um, <laughs> hey, check this shit out, motherfucker. What a, what a name. Uh huh. Al Alvin C. I'm on the C. (laughs) (laughs) Graham's diet. (laughs) Ah, motherfucker! I got there first. God damn it! Uh, Who would? (laughs) So he would he would use this (laughs) this (laughs) he would use this technique in a final test before the Operation Crossroads nuclear test scheduled a month before uh, a month later at Bikini Atoll.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Glutton for punishment. It required the operator to place two half-spheres of beryllium, a neutron reflector, around the core to be tested and manually lower the top reflector over the core using a thumb hole on the top. As the reflectors were manually moved closer and farther away from each other, scintillation counters measured the relative activity from the core. The experimenter needed to maintain a slight separation between the reflector halves in order to stay below criticality. Uh, so that's all you got to do. The standard protocol was to use shims between the halves as allowing them to close completely could result in the instantaneous formation of a critical mass and a lethal power excursion. Now, when I hear using shims to do something, I'm thinking Mm -hmm. like, say,
0: you're building a cabinet and you just need to wedge something up a bit while you're screwing it in or whatever. I'm just going to whack a shim in there.
1: That's right, oh, and they they have shims. I don't know if they're made out of like you know concrete or something, but little little shims to chuck in there. They have these.
0: Yeah. Okay. That just sounds
1: very like I'll oh, just, just and that's the protocol. Tap a shim in there. Yeah. Tap a right. shim in there. whack a whack a little shim in there, and that's the safe way. Yeah. Uh huh. Under Slotin's unapproved protocol, the shims were not used, and the only thing preventing the closure was the blade of a standard flat-tipped screwdriver manipulated in Slotten's other hand. Awesome. That is fucking fantastic. Slotten, who was given to Bravado, became the local expert, performing the test on almost a dozen occasions, often in his trademark blue jeans and cowboy boots. Now we're fucking talking. Yeehaw. I'm the nuclear cowboy. (laughs) Imagine if he became... After irradiating himself, instead of becoming extremely dead, he became the nuclear cowboy. <laughs> his boots and jeans have become
0: part of his body now. Can't <laughs> his, take them off. They're glowing, technically flesh now. Glowing
1: green uh, lasso.
0: <laughs> I'm picturing that uh, he's wearing nothing else. It's just the jeans and the boots and he is shirtless and he's doing mm-hmm. this. Um,
1: That is not what happened, though. Mm, he uh, didn't. He didn't become. Didn't become the nuclear cowboy. toxic
0: Avenger style nuclear cowboy.
1: No, he, more in the sort of uh, bag of nuclear waste getting run over at the end of um, RoboCop. Mm, certainly, It comes God up a lot in this cowboy. podcast. It's it's one of the um. It's like um. It's like the similes from Embassy Town, just endlessly. Oh, reasonable. Uh, right. that, that is kind of how we
0: communicate, isn't it? Especially it on is. this podcast. That's true. Read the book <laughs> Embassy Town by yeah, China Miéville.
1: This is sort of like the end of the movie Akira. Um, so- it's
0: also this in itself. This is sort of a metatextual reference. The way that we communicate with those similes is much like in that Star Trek TNG episode where the guy communicates using stories and Picard has to learn how to how to understand that by communicating oh, with his own stories?
1: Haven't seen it. This is something like um,
0: Pontypool. Haven't seen it, and you've told me a couple of times watching. I was God, thinking gotta, the other night about
1: watching it. No, mate, you got to get on that, man. You will, you won't you, you won't regret it. Um, so, Enrico Fermi, who very smart guy, very <laughs> well renowned for doing back of the envelope calculations, um, just a, an insanely intuitive guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he reportedly told Slotten and others that they would be, quote, dead within a year if they continued performing the test in that manner. I mean, that's a Scientist- hell of a
0: back of an envelope calculation. Yeah, you just I've, like, sorry, I've one run second. The numbers. <laughs> oh,
1: 365 days. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> dead. There you go. Unlined it twice there. Uh, scientists referred to this flirting with the possibility of a nuclear chain reaction as quote Tickling the dragon's tail Based on a remark made by phys- physicist Richard Feynman Who compared the experiments to tickling the tail of a sleeping dragon uh, On the day um, of the accident Slotin's <laughs> screwdriver slipped outward a fraction of an inch While he was lowering the top reflector Allowing the reflector to fall into place around the core Ah! Of fingers again, fuck.
0: So the the phrase they used before was that it was being held open by a, a flathead screwdriver manipulated in his hand. So he was yes.
1: holding it. He was holding holding the screwdriver.
0: Right, and so I just the the amount of wiggle room I'll give my yeah. hand to move. If my hand moves a fraction of an inch while I'm ostensibly holding it still, I'll say that's the price of doing business. That's acceptable. That's within acceptable
1: margins. That's right. But not, not for, not for slotten. and of course, your classic screwdriver, not very long, so you've got to be, got to be right up in that business mm. as well. Um, so, this fell out, allowing the reflector to fall into place around the core. Instantly, there was a flash of blue light and a wave of heat across slotten's skin. Uh, the core has become supercritical, um, releasing an intense burst of neutron radiation estimated to have lasted half a second. Uh, Slotten quickly turned his wrist, flipping the top shell to the floor. The heating of the core and shells stopped the criticality within seconds of its initiation, while Slotten's reaction prevented a reoccurrence and ended the accident. So he's basically a hero. Then the nuclear cowboy rides Uh again. Uh, The position of Slotten's body over the apparatus also shielded the others from much of the neutron radiation, but he received a lethal dose of 1,000 red, which is 10 greys of neutrons and 114 rad, uh, which is 1.14 grays of gamma radiation in under a second and died uh, died nine days later from acute radiation poisoning. Could have been anything. Could have been that. Could have been something he ate. It could have been he had one of those glow-in-the-dark watches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could have been anything. The the supercritical ball of plutonium named the demon core.
0: Uh, not a lot of um, things that... Happen in our world are Like It's a, a very science fiction Flash of blue light uh, Before you get turned Into the Hulk And then
1: killed No No There's certainly A, a limited Opportunity I'd say For that to happen to you Um The nearest person to Slotin, Graves, who was watching over Slotin's shoulder and was thus partially shielded by him, received a high but non-lethal radiation dose. Uh, He was hospitalized... Yeah, so it's some good news. He was hospitalized for several weeks with severe radiation poisoning and developed chronic neurological and vision problems as a result. Uh, He died 20 years later at the age of 55 of a heart attack. Uh, Which could have been that. Or could have been genetics. So you never know whether whether you'll be... uh, Sometimes... The demon core kills you, and sometimes it's a heart attack, and yep. that's really, I think, the takeaway. There's a parable there today. for
0: all of us. Don't mm-hmm. be
1: scared of the demon core, because maybe you'll just die of a heart attack. That's right. You might. You're going to die anyway. Why not tickle the dragon's tail? Why not s- slap Carly, the goddess of death, on the bum? Why not? Uh, what do they do with it? Hang on, I didn't actually quote. What do what we do with it? Uh, so ominously... Well, ominously, they don't actually. No, uh, no, we don't know where it where it is. Okay, that's um, concerning. It could be anywhere. I assume
0: you know the end of the uh, Indiana Jones movies How's the the big oh, warehouse full of shit and yeah.
1: the warehouse of other demon cores. Yes, yeah, there's tens of thousands of them. Well, <laughs> another gigantic, massive. Radioactive materials gone evil, boys. <laughs> better, put, <laughs> better put it in the shed with the rest of them. <laughs> strange how rarely they turn out to be benevolent.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much for for telling me about that. Oh, I,
1: thank you for listening.
0: I had heard uh, the phrase "demon core." I believe earlier you asked me if I knew what the demon core was, as in earlier in our lives. Yeah. Um, and I thought possibly you were referring to that thing about the uh, the Siberian hell sounds.
1: Uh, obviously not real, no, uh, we should I but mean, cool nonetheless. And also, Andrew proposed it, um, as if it was something that I hadn't heard of. And that's like, is hey, bold of him, very bold. And also, you've got your own series about coming on the queen or whatever it is.
0: Well, thank you, much, very much. Thank you, much, very much, uh, for doing this with me. And thank you yeah. to you, the listener. Uh, thank you, much, very much to all of our listeners, too much for listening to this much. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll be back with a normal episode next time. Probably. Maybe. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Very unreliable, you're Andrew and you're Lucy. <laughs> that's <laughs> no. not true. I mean, especially <laughs> if you looked up the number of episodes Andrew has been on. I'm going to say he's missed out on like three. Two.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Anyway. Huh? Thanks for listening. Bye. Good night.
1: I'd be on top. I don't think that's how pronounce. I'd be on top.